0: okay? Okay, yeah. We might need one of those halfway through, okay? <laughs> tomato, tomato, Mina, minor. However you wish to say it, we have a parable about them, which Paul has helpfully read. Okay. Well, it's quite helpful, really. Jesus tells us why they were, uh, why he spoke of this parable. In verse eleven, but before we have a quick look, we are looking at the kingdom uh, has got talent. We'll see what that actually means. But we've taken a journey so far is to look at the kingdom of God and how that's expressed through the Lord Jesus through the uh, the uh, Luke's Gospel, and we come to the parable, the parable, the parable of the ten miners. Well, Jesus connects this passage to what has just been uh, said before. Have a look at verse 11 with me. While they were listening to this, i.e. something was being said, he went on to tell them a parable. Okay, so he connects it with the previous verse. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So the passage which has just been gone is, is that familiar one of that short guy, which I can, I can associate myself with, who, wore, who went up the tree to get a good view of Jesus. Zacchaeus was his name. Well, this is what it was following. It's because of what happened with Zacchaeus, and that Jerusalem was near, and that they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Well, they just don't get it. They can't see what Jesus' mission is. They were expecting a political and military activist. They wanted some sort of political upheaval. If you remember the context, is that they're in oppression from the Roman occupation. They wanted liberation from this. The promises of God told them they would be liberated from the occupying power. Well, he told this parable because Jerusalem was near. Jerusalem was near. Jesus was going to die. That's what Jerusalem meant for Jesus. But it wasn't the end. It wasn't to end at Jerusalem. There's a Jerusalem and a beyond. And this is why he had to tell this parable. Jerusalem was near, and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Well, prompted by a significant victory over Rommel, Sir Winston Churchill gave a speech in 1942, and it was, um, it was quite a, a well-known one, and it says, now this is not the end, it is not even the beginning of the end, but perhaps the end of the beginning. Now, I think Jesus could have actually said this. Now, this is not the end. When I get to Jerusalem and die, it's not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. There's a beyond. But perhaps it is the end of the beginning. So, what it meant for them is to not be disappointed when they see the slaughtered Savior on the tree and taken down. It meant for them to look beyond Jerusalem, to look beyond the cross. Well, what does that mean for us? We know that that happened. We know that Jesus didn't come to upheave, uh, 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 to uh, get rid of the Roman occupation. He didn't want a regime change in a political sense necessarily at that time. But the meaning is the same for us and them. It was the end of the beginning. All the preparatory work that has been gone on for 1,500 years, 2,000 years before Christ came was just preparatory work. Jesus came and died, and that was the end of the beginning. Well, the parable speaks of this nobleman of noble birth. Um, Let's have a look again at um, verses 12 to 14. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. Another translation is to say, receive a kingdom. Pretty much the same thing, but if you think of the receive a kingdom, which is the same word, is translated other, uh, in other parts of the Bible as kingdom, it puts a different perspective perspective on it. He's looking to build himself a kingdom. He's going to be appointed king though. So here we go. Uh, where did we get to? So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation out to him to say we don't want this man to be our king. Well, I'm going to come to my second point today. Be profitable in the king's business. Well, we have this nobleman and we, as we look at this nobleman we see Christ. We, this is a picture of Christ going to heaven and receiving that kingdom becoming that king And we see his citizens and his servants. This nobleman is the point of focus in this. He is the one but the action surrounds. And it's the servants and citizens who react to that. Well, he's had himself appointed king. And the good business of of being able to look back in hindsight is that we know that this is a fact. In um, Acts, we read, Exalted to the right hand of God, both Lord and Christ. We look at the end of the Bible from Revelation and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth. He's gone to heaven. He has received the kingdom. He has become a king. But there's a beyond. He's promised to return See, this is his plan and this is his mission to receive a kingdom and to return. Jesus is coming back. But before this happens, we see the nobleman involving his servants in his business. And so, as we remind ourselves as, uh, that the anointing of Jesus as king was only the beginning of, of the end of the beginning, we see that there is more to happen. Read verse 13. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. You see, he is entrusting his servants with a relatively small amount of money, one miner or minor, which roughly was about three months uh, wages for a labor of that day. So... £45,000, no, hang on, £45,000, that would be good, wouldn't it? They'd be paying them, that's three years' worth. Well, I don't know what you'd get for that, well, I can't do the equation. But, uh, but three months' wages, it's not much, not much at all. On the understanding, though, it wasn't just a free handout, that they will put it to work. And the original w- meaning of that word, put it to work, had more of a, a, a sense of um, turning a profit and I'm not, not talking about tapping Isaiah on the shoulder so he comes round. Not that kind of prophet. But actually gaining something back from his investment in us. And that's what he expects of his servants. And he expects him, them to be engaged in that until he returns. But, verse 14, his subjects or citizens hated him and sent a delegation after to him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. You see, as subjects or citizens, they have the benefits, don't they? They have the privileges and protection of being citizens, especially in the Roman state. This is really important. If you're a Roman citizen, well, that was good. Because you couldn't be um, uh, charged on a number of accounts or punished in the same way as uh, non-citizens. But despite the privilege and protection, they reject him. And they petition about the claim that he has under his, over their lives. You see, in a land under occupation, this picture would have really resonated with the Jewish crowd. Um, most of you may have heard of Josephus, a Jewish historian. He talks about this one guy in, in um, living memory of Jesus at this point in time. His name was Archelaus. And this, this guy went to Rome, around about uh, Jesus' birth, around about that time, seeking confirmation of his kingship. And after he had set out, the Jews had sent out a delegation to protest this appointment. But there's another part to it. When he returned with royal power, he exacted judgment on his enemies. That's how Josephus records it. So put yourself in the place of the crowds when they hear that the citizens sent out a delegation to say we do not want this king. I wonder if they were sitting uncomfortably thinking, well what's going to happen? I, I, I think I know what happened to mum and dad. Well, we have servants and citizens. Those who have committed their lives to their lord, the master, and those who have rejected him. Well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. Paul describes Christians as slaves or servants of Christ, inasmuch that we are those who have committed our lives and our will to his service and will. And so as we identify Christ as this nobleman in the story, if you consider yourself a Christian this morning, well, this command is for us as well. We've been entrusted to carry out the king's business. Well, along with that comes responsibility. Jesus will judge the faithfulness of his servants when he returns. I'm going to look at the next uh, part, 15 to 26. So having received the kingdom... He returns and calls his servants to account. Now, Jesus paints two scenarios here. Those servants who have uh, been faithful and a servant who hasn't. Well, let's take a look at those who have. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five uh, more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. You see, here, Jesus rewards his trustworthy servants. You see, each servant has been trustworthy in a very small matter three months' wages. Not much at all. It's not a life-changing sum. But the thing is, how often do we think, well, I need, I need that endowment to, to come to uh, fruition. That I, I need to have an inheritance. I need to have my pension. I need to gain more before I can start giving. Well, they've been trustworthy in a very small matter. It starts off very small. But the master commends them. He commends his servant and says, well done. Well done, my good servant. Is that what you desire to hear from Jesus? Well done, my good servant. If Jesus said to you, I give you this talent. I give you this amount of money and you've done superbly with it. Well done. You've been considerate and careful and mindful and stewarded what I've given you. Well done. Well done. I would bet, I would bet, that nearly every single testimony of the, a successful businessman or woman would have something like this in it. Success didn't come overnight. It took a long time and a lot of hard work. It requires focus and determination, having to make sacrifices to achieve it. Now, I think we can think of a few famous business people who might say that kind of word, those kind of words. Well, working for Jesus is no different. It's just the business model is. It requires that focus and determination. It requires a lot of hard work. It requires having to make sacrifices to achieve it. Well, the master responds, well done, my good servant, and rewards both of them according to the measure of the profit they have made. You know, to the servant who had made ten miners, he gave them charge over ten cities. Five minus five cities. You can see the proportionality there. Well, what we do now, and how faithful we are to what he is giving us, has given us, has a bearing on our reward to be given to us in the kingdom to come. Faithful service to the master now demonstrates our faithfulness and readiness for greater responsibility when he returns. And when he returns, it will be a real kingdom, a physical kingdom with real cities. And you would consider any wise ruler would give greater authority to those who can show their trustworthiness in just a very small matter. But we must be careful to avoid the trap of how we measure profit Okay, for the businessman, success is measured by um, the bottom line and financial profit you get. But remember, Jesus' business is different to that. It's quite different, and so success is measured differently too. But it's not about racking up the converts and chalking them off on your board and say, "This is credit this to my account." The numbers do matter because. What would happen to those who gave their lives to Christ at a very young age? They are not able to convert as many as they could have done. It may be that someone else, you've done all the preparatory work and somebody else closes the deal and leads them to Christ. That wouldn't be fair if we did it on that kind of profit. Now Jesus gives a greater share in the government of the new kingdom on account of their faithful service and stewardship of what he has given. Faithful service and stewardship of what he has given. You know, if somebody was prepared to die for my business and they had the good luck to have been resurrected again, I would surely want them employed in my business and in charge of a lot of it because I know where his heart lies. Well, Jesus is no fool, he is wise, he is a wise ruler. Verse 20, then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Well, we'll find out that Jesus condemns those who abstain from his work. Now the king has commanded, be profitable, make money from what I have given you. But this guy hasn't produced a single thing. And now he is summoned to the king to give an account. And he stands before him, having disobeyed. But what is his reaction? He doesn't say sorry. He says, it's not my fault, it's yours. It's not to do with me, it's because of who you are. You unfairly profit from all your servants' work, not lifting a finger yourself. Well, he blames. He blames his master. He doesn't consider himself to be at fault. He has a good reason and excuse to to show him that he has not made a profit. Well, these are stinging words from his master. Verse 22. His master replied, I will judge you, By your own words, you wicked servant, you knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put money on deposit or in a bank so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Well, you see, his defense now is shown out and exposed to be just lies because his inaction just doesn't make sense. He has this dilemma to resolve. Um, I'm claiming he is a severe boss. Then if he is, then you want to be on the right side of him. But he doesn't deserve it. He's lazy. He doesn't lift a finger. And I don't want to work for that. So he's severe, which I want to avoid. He's lazy, so I don't want to work. Well, then that way I'll put it in a bank. I don't have to work. I'll let the bank do the work and gain the interest, and I can give that to him. Therefore, job done. But the thing is, he didn't even do that. He didn't live up to what he was saying. He was telling lies. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words. That's what it says in verse 22. By your own words, you wicked servant. You know, by scrabbling around for a defense, he only strengthens the case for the prosecution. The king doesn't need to judge the case on the lack of profitability of this servant. He says, no, I'm going to judge you by your own words. You see, the slander that he came out with is enough to expose the heart of this servant. Because that wasn't the reason why he didn't serve him. You see, this guy had a heart from the beginning that failed to listen and failed to um, obey the command of the king. You see, there is no excuse as Christians to defend ourselves from abstaining from the king's business. We can't stand before him and say, it's your fault. See, if you are called um, before Jesus to give an account for your life but has nothing, you have nothing to show for the gifts, the talents, time and money he has given you, what could you say? What excuses could you have lined up just in case? You could say, I didn't think you were coming. Well, if you're doing that, aren't you accusing that Jesus is unfaithful to his promises? Because he said he's going to return. Well, that's, not a, that's not an excuse we can use. What about, I didn't think it was important enough? Well, in that case, are you saying that you know better than Jesus? Or are, or are you regarding his death as something trivial? Not really worth spending your time on. That's not an excuse. What about, I was too busy? This is, a, this is one which I probably would try and use. But aren't you saying that what you want takes priority of what, over what Jesus wants? You see, every excuse that we produce is a slander on the name of Jesus Christ. If we try to defend ourselves before him, then he will show us to be liars. We will accuse him of being unfaithful, inglorious, and unworthy, if we we even dare point the finger at him. You see, there is no defense for not getting stuck into the king's work. He was condemned by his words. And these are sobering words. And they're so chilling compared to, well done. My good servant. Verse 24. Then he said to those standing by, Take away his miner, away from him, and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, uh, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. You see, an American preacher put it, God is not a socialist. It's not about everybody lining up and everybody receiving an equal portion. Now we see that the person who produced 10 miners was given 10 cities, the authority over 10 cities. Five miners was five cities. And here we've just got that underlined and rubber stamped. You know, God is not a socialist, but he is fair and he is just. He will do what is right. They said, he already has ten, that's not fair. It is fair, and it's wise. He is a ruler, he is a king, and he has a kingdom to govern. You know, there are some things that we will share in common. And by word, that will be glorious. And it will cause everybody to enjoy him forever and glorify him. But faithfulness will be rewarded. And it will be rewarded in proportion to your faithfulness now. Well, verse 27 doesn't make the picture any brighter for the citizens. Verse 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be a king over them, Bring them here and kill them in front of me. My Third point. Jesus will judge his enemies when he returns. They were referred to as citizens, subjects in verse 14, protected and privileged. But now they're referred to nothing more than those enemies, You see, original hearers would have been the Jews who would have uh, benefited from the blessings of living in God's community. And some say that his his enemies are the Jews. But this doesn't solely apply to them. They would have felt the slap of this. But it's not just for them. See, this would be wrong... And anti-Semitic, Scripture teaches elsewhere that the Jews will be brought back. Now, this warning applies to all God's enemies. You know, we have all had the privileges and protection of living in God's world. We've all benefited from the uh, grace of God and all that uh, and to all the people uh, that He gives to all the people on Earth. But when the King returns, there will be no protection. No special favours, no privileges. If anyone rejects Jesus now as king, they will be killed. In the ESV it says slaughtered. It's a foul picture. But God is a God who does right and he is just. You see, this is the eternal judgment of God on those who reject Christ. And if you're here this morning... You don't accept Jesus as your king. Think long and hard about those words. Because he is going to be returning. And he is going to ask an account of his servants. But he's also going to bring the judgment on his enemies too. But I don't want to end there. I don't want you going away thinking, Oh dear, what a sermon. I wish I hadn't come. Because there's good news. There is good news. Okay, There is time. He has gone away and received a kingdom. He is the king who has sat enthroned on high as we sung before. And In fact, that, uh, one of the songs that we did sing ended there. It ended there. But the thing is, we are in this in-between time from his enthronement on high to when he returns. There is time. Now, whether we know that we haven't really been putting our gifts to work in the service of the king, there is time. If we haven't been being careful stewards of our money, there is time. There is time to work for the king's business. Or there is time to receive Jesus as your king and not reject him. There is time to turn it around, to accept him as king and to return a profit for him. You know, there is a clear warning in this passage today. So don't run the risk of hearing these words from Jesus when he returns. I will judge you by your own words, wicked servant. I don't want to hear that from my Lord. You see, there is an amazing, gracious offer to serve the king. Now is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. When Jesus died on that cross, it was the end of the beginning. It started. It's continuing. There is beyond Jerusalem. But we need to be active in this king's business now. Do you believe Jesus will return? That's a question to ask yourself. Do you remind yourself daily that your loving Saviour and Lord is coming back? You know, if we shift our focus from that, we lose any urgency of the task that has been given to us. You know, we will put off until tomorrow what we should be doing today. We will forget the need. You know, like a teacher who walks out of the classroom and says, Please be quiet, I will be back in five minutes. Now those uh, of you who are teachers or have teaching experience will know that when you come back, the noise and crescendo of noise happening in that classroom will be deafening. Well, let us not be like that classroom. Let's be obeying Jesus' command. He tells us to be good servants. I don't want him to return and find us just playing around with our toys and doing stuff that we want to do. We need to be disciplined. But it's because the children thought that the teacher wasn't coming back. You know, it didn't just burst into um, noise when the teacher left the room. I expect a few started nattering, and then a few more, then the paper airplanes started going. You know, we need to be disciplined. but it's, We need to keep a focus on the fact there is a beyond Jerusalem, that he is going to come and return. So let us engage in Jesus' business to build his church, to build his kingdom, to build up the community of God and seeking to impact the community around us. In the preceding passage, which we said was tied to this one, Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. That was his mission. That was his business. This is the business that we are involved in. It's the business that they didn't really want to hear but it's the business that he has given us as as his servants. Small steps, intentional steps, daily steps, faithful steps, using our gifts, talents, time, money, that Jesus has entrusted us. You know, for those who are able to attend the Inside Out course, you'll see opportunities And probably, hopefully, you'll be able to see beyond these four walls and see how we can reach that community, how we can engage in the business of Jesus Christ. When we seek to turn a profit, investing in our neighbor down the road, our colleague at work, as we pursue people in prayer, we are being faithful servants, building up a reward in heaven when one day we will get to hear those words of our loving master who will say to you, well done, my good servant.